Martin. And he has recently written a book called Windswept House. And we're going to be in this first interview discussing uh, this book because in addition to answering many questions that uh, many Catholics have about the condition of the church today, it also raises other questions. And it's those questions that we need to discuss today. Yes, Bernard. Uh, I think that we should have a discussion about it because the book is presented, by the way, in the form of a novel. And therefore, the intent of the author can be seen through the novelistic framework. But since the book was published in last June, that I read June 14, 1966, I've been on radio and talking to a lot of people on television and radio, and all the questions thrown at me uh, concern the, not the truth or the falsehood. Most people realize that when, the, when this book tells a story, say, about the Vatican or about a bishop in America or something in France, and that it's factual, but the, that the personalities have been hidden. There's been a certain novelistic form. It's very useful, by the way, a very useful uh, literary genre. It's practiced by many people today. Jeffrey Archer, by the way, the British writer, uses it. Um, and several other writers use it. Taylor Caldwell wrote all her books. In this way, she writes a book about the oil barons of her day and never mentioned any of their names. She had false names, but she wrote the story. So this is what this book does. So a uh, discussion is necessary. People say, how much of it is factual? How much of it is imagination? And I've always told them that 85% uh, uh, of the personalities are actual, and 95% of the events are actual. But they're all cloaked in a novelistic form. It's easy to digest. I'll tell you what my main reaction to the book was. Mm. And that was that it was realistic because I know uh, many families who have had uh, their unity broken apart by the uh, crisis in the church, let's say like the Gladstone family did. And I know priests who have suffered, let's say, in the way that... Um, Mike Riley. Yes, who was frozen out of the diocese. Sure, sure. Yeah, we've seen it. And uh, uh, I, I, I know that certain Catholics are in denial about this book and about the church. They think everything is really hunky-dory. They thought we had difficulties. Who hasn't had difficulties? But there's great evangelization. There's great apostolicity. There's a great building up for, of devotion for the year 2000. We've got a very activist pope, and he's known and respected all over the world. We're one billion members. We're the biggest uh, denomination in the world, religious denomination. And they're in total denial of the evils that beset this organization called the Roman Catholic Church. And what would you say is the primary theme of Windswept House? The primary theme, and this may surprise a lot of people, is this, that the organization, the Roman Catholic organization, as an organization that is composed of cardinals, British, uh, bishops, priests, religious nuns, with schools and academies and institutions, parishes and dioceses, and everything that goes along with it, that this, as an organization, is an apostasy. And that's a very very, very strong statement, because, you know, it's one thing to be schismatic. If you're schismatic, it means that you fight about some, some bishop's power or jurisdiction. It, it's one thing to be a heretic. Heretic is where you say, no, I don't believe there's a place called purgatory. I believe that God is too good. I don't believe that anybody goes to hell, uh, which is against faith, by the way, incidentally, but I don't believe it, that I'm a heretic. If I say, well, no, I don't believe Our Lady was conceived immaculate, that's heresy. It doesn't mean you've lost your faith. It means you're very dangerously positioned to lose your faith. But when you're apostate, you've denied basic truths. God doesn't exist. There's no such thing as the church. There's no hell. There's no such thing as divine grace. There's no such thing as sin. Real sin. There's just social offenses. Uh, when you deny, go into sheer denial of basic truths, you're an apostate. At the present moment, a sizable majority of people are in apostasy, have been led into apostasy, and a sizable minority of cardinals, bishops, priests, and religious are in apostasy. They no longer profess the basic truths of Christianity. Forget Catholicism. And is this um, what distinguishes this crisis from previous crises in the church? Because let's say um, during the Protestant Reformation, um, Luther and King Henry VIII did not walk away entirely from they, the no, basic beliefs no, of no, uh, the Christian religion. No, no, they were that fight of Joe Roe over jurisdiction. They fell into heresy. 
but they never, never doubted the existence of hell, or heaven, or sanctity, or divine grace, sanctifying grace, or authority in the church, or revelation, or the magisterium, just they claimed to be the magisterium, that was the only difference. But they never fell into this. This is worse than the Arian heresy of the early centuries, which denied Christ's divinity. This simply, this is a, a, a terrible situation where they simply do not believe that Jesus is in the Blessed Sacrament. They don't believe that Jesus knew he was God, or was God. He became God. Uh, and it, they even go further than that. Uh, the, as you know, there's a man called Thayer de Chardin, a French Jesuit. He's dead now. He held that Christ, God, God didn't become man. Man is going to become God, which is a very different slant of things. And several of the cardinals at the present moment hold that. They no longer believe in the incarnation as we know it, or the resurrection as we know it. They are apostates, and they're in charge, Bernard. They're in charge of the church. So this filters all the way uh, down to the uh, laity who are practicing their faith in the and parish. It filters the priest teaching the seminaries because they find they can deny the divinity of Jesus, and not, no, nobody does anything to them. And uh, for instance, when the present bishop of Melbourne became bishop, he called in the faculty, uh, Bishop Pell is his name, and said, I now insist that you teach traditional Catholic doctrine. You know what happened? The faculty resigned. They said, I'm sorry, Bishop, we like you, we respect you, but we don't believe these things any longer. The whole faculty resigned in Melbourne. So this situation then also explains why um, unity in the church has broken down. Yes, why there is no unity. So there's no meeting of the minds, let's say, between the believers and uh, the apostates. None. None, whatever. And it also is responsible for the arise of what we now know as the underground church. That is, an extensive network of bishops, priests, religious, nuns, schools, best sacrament chapels, confessions, and rider priests throughout America and Canada and Latin America and in Europe. There's an underground church uh, which uh, is flourishing. It's minor, it's small, but it's flourishing, and more people are being attracted to it because they're leaving the conciliarist church, what I call the conciliarist church. That is, they follow absolutely rigidly what is said about Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council, and they're in apostasy. They don't know it. You know, Bernard, the big pity is this. There's, there's no doubt about it. We have 60, 66 million Catholics, I think, in these United States, if they were to tell the truth about the numbers. And the majority are being led by the nose out of the uh, out of true faith, and they don't know it, because they're obedient. And the priest says it's okay to be homosexual, it's all right to divorce and be, 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 be remarried and come to the sacraments. If the priest says that, well, it's all right, you, you won't go to hell, God doesn't send anybody to hell, it doesn't really exist. And the devil, that's a myth. And the priest says that, and the bishop says that. People say, well, hey, come on. What do we believe? So the apostates, they um, would not see any reality outside of what uh, you could uh, see and hear and touch and feel. They, they would deny the super the existence, or they wouldn't include in their worldview um, the eternal and the supernatural. Oh, no, no, that's gone. The devils, the angels, the saints. Uh, there is something after death called heaven. It's a pleasant place. Everybody goes to it. Uh, it was the general idea, and God never sends anybody into a, uh, a dark and murky hole called hell. No, no, or purgatory, that's all mythic, mythological. That's the outlook, that's apostasy, and that's the... You see, Bernard, look, if you tell me you're a believer, and then I find that in practice you act as if none of it was true, and I question you and find out that you really don't believe in hell, you don't believe in angels, you don't believe in, in purgatory, that's what you really believe, no matter what you say by way of, by rote profession or saying I'm a Roman Catholic. You're not. You're an apostate. Well, that's one of the characteristics of the current hierarchy is that they don't usually openly deny um, these do doctrines and dogmas of the faith. They just more or less uh, live and live their faith and live their lives as if these doctrines don't exist. Yeah, that's right. In abstraction from them. They abstract from them completely. They don't exist any longer. And that's the difficulty. That's what's happening. And would this apostasy then explain why, um, let's say, these um, clergymen, let's say, would show no interest in the rosary? That's right. 
But why, why finger beads like a Muslim? I mean, these are prayer beads. These are worry beads like the Greeks have, and they fiddle with them. There's nothing. What are you doing? You're going from Hail Mary to... You're saying 50 Hail Marys at, a, at one rush? But listen here. It, it's not even humanly sensible to do that. So we don't see any use in that, and then we don't believe in our lady's privileges. That's all gone. That's faith. And the terrible thing is, Bernard, that if you lose your faith, you don't know you have lost it. Because if you knew you'd lost it, you'd have got it back. You see, these, these men just carry on um, as uh, churchmen. Like, they, they, they don't walk out of the church. Uh, oh, they, no. they still view no. themselves as good Catholics. I do. Now, I must tell you a story in connection with that, which is rather frightening. I remember I, I worked with a cardinal during the Vatican Council called Cardinal Bear. And he came in to me one day, and he was perspiring. He never perspired. He was, there, he was only 83. But it wasn't so much his age, it was that he, he never perspired. And he was perspiring, and he was trembling. And I said, Eminence, what has happened? He said, I've just been listening to a conversation between Hans Kuhn and Schillerbeck. There were two theologians, way out theologians, who were both pastors. And he said, I heard Schillerbeck say, well, then we can't stay in this church. And Kuhn said, no, 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 no. In the 16th century with the Protestants, we left the church and we lost. This time we're staying inside and we're going to change it. All of this crisis in the church, though, it must have had some type of a source. It wouldn't just come from uh, nowhere. What would this source be? Well, as you know, today, universally in the media and in literature and in commentators above all, Anybody who speaks about a conspiracy is labeled as a conspiratorial freak. But we do now know we have the evidence of it. And someday we can publish it all. We do now know that there was a plan which influenced John XXIII to call the council. And once the council was called, we now know that cardinals like Cardinal Sunens of Belgium and uh, Koenig of Vienna, and a whole list of German cardinals and French cardinals, connived to change the council from being a Catholic council to being what it became. That's something which disrupted the tradition of the church and uh, uh, which produced the documents that are now formed the basis of the universal apostasy in the Roman Catholic Church. We now know that. It was a carefully laid plan and it came from non-Catholic sources. Why? Well, look at it like this. It's the now the 1950s, and the strongest growing body in the international sphere is the Roman Catholic Church. And it has a very strong pope called Pacelli, who's going to die uh, immediately. And they're spreading all over the world and a great respectability. What do you do about that? You plan to disrupt it from inside, to penetrate it. And therefore you penetrate it by means of co-opting several cardinals into the Masonic Lodge, become members of the Lodge, and very respectable members of the Lodge, and bishops also, and priests, and you proceed to, to introduce homosexuality as quite a, an acceptable mode of life for anybody, including priests and nuns. You do this very carefully. That is what has happened. Who formed that plan? Well, whether people like it or not, and later history will show conclusively, we have very dire enemies who see the Roman Catholic Church as the one big obstacle to their plans. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Church says, um, I have ultimate authority over anything you do. Anything you do, which is a moral action, I am the authority. Number two, I am also the authority on education. I must have the children to educate. They have to be educated by me in the beginning. We claim education. And thirdly then, we claim finally to be the source of all power. Many people know it, Bernard. But finally, paper doctrine is that even political power descends through the papacy. The papacy doesn't insist on that any longer because uh, it's not accepted. But de facto, all power on earth comes from Christ, and his only vicar on earth is the Pope. And the idea of democracy, that if the people are, have power, I'm sorry, that's not Catholic. The people have power through Christ, from Christ.
the idea that power resides in the people and people can give the power to whom they like, that's a, that's a half-boiled doctrine. The full doctrine is that all power comes from Christ. He said it himself, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. He chose the power. Uh, and therefore, it descends through him or through his vicar, who is only one man and one man only. And we have now the 264th successor of Peter uh, in the throne, and he is, through Christ, the source of political power, political authority, political authenticity, political uh, genuineness. That's the true Catholic doctrine. But these enemies go back, I think, right from the time that uh, Christ walked this earth. Because wasn't there a meeting of the Sanhedrin to do something to stop uh, sure, Jesus? Sure, sure. But they were only acting. You see, uh, a lot of other people had misery or not. And it, it's irrelevant whether they had misery or not. In this world, you're either serving Christ or you're serving Lucifer. There, there are only two issues at stake. There's good and there's bad. And good is represented by Christ and bad is represented by, by Lucifer. You may not know Christ. You may be a Buddhist. You've never heard of him. Or if you did, you heard about it vaguely. You may be a Muslim who never heard about it. You can be a Muslim in Indonesia or in Algeria or in Saudi Arabia and never know about Christ. But if you're serving good, you're serving Christ. And the grace to do so comes through Christ one way or the other. If you don't, if you're cruel, if you're evil, if you're pernicious, if you're a liar, if you're a perjurer, that's all the work of Lucifer, no matter what your form of religion is. No matter who, what your color of your skin is, it's from Lucifer. Those two divide up humanity. And uh, today, uh, unfortunately, the denial of Christ's revelation is abroad in the Church of Christ, the organization. That's the difficulty. And people have got to, I find more and more Catholics and more and more people have got to, even non-Catholics, I always point out to them, there's a distinction between the union of all believers who are practicing their faith and those and the organization which vehicles that. The Roman Catholic Church is the ideal vehicle for believers in Christ. But it's only an organization and it's fading. And one of the themes of Wix Reptiles, the sub-theme of this book is that in a short time, humanly speaking, there will be no Holy Roman Catholic Church organization visible. There won't be any. And we must deal with that. But something must have happened like, that would have caused, let's say, since the 1960s, for this um, organization to seemingly uh, start self-destructing, yeah. Auto-demolition. Yeah, there was this consecration, this enthronement of Satan within the Vatican, of Lucifer, by the way. Now, did that actually happen? Yes, it's a historical fact. It was done one particular day by a certain group of people representing Luciferians all over the world especially American Luciferians. It was done. And therefore, in a certain sense, Lucifer has power. He doesn't own yet, but I'm sure he hopes to own some Pope as his man. I'm sure he does. And he expects to own some Pope, not the present Pope, but some Pope, so that the house is really his. And the only one who can expel him is the owner of the house, and that owner is the Pope. And he must carry out the exorcism. Now, the cleansing of the house. Some people who have uh, read Windswept House, after they read about this uh, enthronement of uh, Satan, said, ah, now I understand why there is this crisis in the church. Because doesn't it have a spiritual um, cause? It must have. It must have. And that's why I remember going to Rome there last year, and speaking with a very, very well-known cardinal, and saying to him, but your eminence, you have got to go to the Holy Father and explain this. He said, no, what can I do? Well, I'm only a simple cardinal. And I said, well, if you don't do it, who's going to do it? He said, nobody. Nobody's going to do it. Nobody will tell the Holy Father the truth. And uh, he's too busy and too worn down to do anything about this. And that's the situation. And until that is done... By the way, there are eight exorcists working in the Vatican under a father, Amort, Gabriel Amort, who's a very good exorcist. But he is not the owner of the house. He doesn't represent Christ. So only the Pope can really uh, resolve this crisis in the church. Can exorcise the demons. Yeah. 
And this would certainly explain then why, let's say, um, many good women, men and women who have, uh, let's say, pre who are priests, who are uh, uh, parents of children, have m maybe worked uh, here and there to uh, do something, and maybe they can uh, save some souls. But that explains then why um, all the efforts, let's say, of pro-lifers and uh, traditionalists... Come to naught. Yeah. Come to naught. Let me give you one example of one dire effect. People just blink at this now, but they should suddenly say, how could that happen? In the same day, within 36 hours, this Holy Father had to receive Mikhail Gorbachev and Fidel Castro. Now, Mikhail Gorbachev is the founder of the New World Religion, which people don't know about him. He's the founder of it, and he's an atheist, and he's a Marxist. And he has no religion. Fidel Castro is an evil man who has stopped practicing religion for 30 or 40 years, and he's been cruel beyond description. They're invited, they come in, they shake the Pope's uh, hand, they sit down with him and talk to him. But you don't do that. You don't do that. You don't entertain the devil's people, and they belong to Lucifer. You don't do that. Now let's, uh, I have a question or two about uh, Gorbachev. Yes. Um, does Gorbachev still play um, an important uh, role in world politics, even though he's no longer head of the Soviet Union? He's much, in a much more powerful position. Much more powerful position. He's just blown up the Earth Charter, the Charter for the Earth, which is the Charter for the New World Order. And it has, it has, it has its own new commandments instead of the Ten Commandments. And people haven't got around to reading it yet. But it's going to be voted on by the United Nations and become law for all nations to foment this Earth Charter, which means we revert to uh, uh, worshipping nature. And uh, we, regard, uh, we regard man as an evil influence in this world and as a, as a pernicious destroyer of, and polluter of Mother Nature. Mother Nature is everything, which is worship of the earth. Gaia is the name of the goddess. And, but Michael Gorbachev is a cruel atheist. And how could you receive him with honor? How could you receive Vijay Castro, who has prisoners dying in his famous island prison, and whose uh, Marxist of the worst order has persecuted the church? You don't receive these people. Well, hasn't the Pope had a relationship with uh, Gorbachev for some time. Yes, and it's always scandalized us. Why? You don't have that sort of relationship with somebody like Mikhail Gorbachev. You, if, if, if you, you must meet him. The Pope has 101 clerics and prelates who can talk to him in his own language. But they should receive him with honor in the Vatican in Christ's house, in the house of the successor of Peter, who is the vicar of Christ. No, you don't do that. It's, it's just too much. You just don't do that. Not for my mind, not for the Catholic mind. And you don't entertain that. Because it seems that the Pope at the time of, uh, say, in 1520, uh, received Luther with honor in the Vatican. Oh, come on. Well, wouldn't that act, uh, let's say, um, in this situation, to uh, demoralize, let's say, the faithful believers uh, behind uh, the does, Iron Curtain? It does. It does demoralize us. It does demoralize us. That's why when Nikita Khrushchev's son-in-law, Adjubey, came to the back and he was received by John the with his wife, um, everybody was shocked by it. How can you receive a man like that? He's actively persecuting the church. How can you do that? Uh, and similarly with uh, mem uh, members of the Chinese government who are persecuting the church. Now it's all done, they say, in the name of diplomacy, and the church has to exercise diplomatic power, and, uh, but nothing ever comes of it except the nourishment of a certain disillusionment in everybody. So well, if they get on, then nothing is so bad. They must be okay, one way or the other must be all right. So it's, it's, I'm pointing this out as the effect of the Luciferian influence in the Vatican. No doubt about it. Lucifer is the prince and he has now a place within the central citadel of the church. Now, in your book there is an exorcist uh, called uh, Father Slattery. That's right. And uh, you are an exorcist as well. What um, perspective does being an exorcist give you about the current uh, crisis in the church? As an exorcist, when you do exorcisms, minor and major, the demons constantly taunt you with the condition of the church. They say, well, we're in St. Peter's. 
We can talk to whom we like. We have representatives sitting beside your Pope every day. What are you talking about? We are legit. I'm quoting demons now. This is what he said to you. How dare you? And our prince has been enthroned, installed. And you're still against us? What are you trying to persecute us for? When you're trying to expel demons. And it's a dreadful thing. Oh, it keeps, you keep repeating the name of Jesus and the prayers and the command to get out. They eventually do, under protest. But what they fling at you is that. Or they say, well, we're in honor amongst the cardinals of, uh, of France. We are, we, the prince is worshipped by some of these people. If we can't be so bad as all that. Why are you against us? Now, there's a point I'd like to raise here, is that um, the way that uh, Satanists are portrayed, let's say, in Hollywood yes. or in the movies, is quite a bit different from the description of the uh, Satanist that was uh, in Windswept House. Oh, yes, it's very different. It's very different because, uh, the, 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 say, if you take, for instance, The Exorcist, the picture of, uh, called The Exorcist, with Linda Blair in it, and uh, based on Blatty's book, um, which is based on a real event, by the way, but distorted totally by Blatty and the picture. Um, it's really is Dracula Frankenstein horror film to make you shiver, give you goosebumps. And people love getting goosebumps. They love being made nervous, but that doesn't, it's all in the imagination. It's like any horror movie, like any Dracula Frankenstein movie. That's one thing. But I assure you, the reality of exorcism, the reality of demon possession, is totally different. It, 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 I remember, I'll give you an example. There was a Dr. Hammond psychologist who always kept saying the same thing. He said, this is all imagination. He said, that these people require very careful therapy. So finally, and he said, let me be present at an exorcism, a thing we don't do normally. So finally, we, had, we admitted him. Hammond never went back to psychiatry. He became a Catholic, and he was Jewish originally. Um, once he was hit by the reality of the of demonic presence. It's something that you don't forget, and it's nothing like looking at the exorcist or any of the Satanist scriptures with Satan with, with claws and, and, and cloven hooves and big yellow eyes and cruel. No, that's, that's lovely imagination. And people love it because it's, it's goosebumps. But it's not reality. Not reality, no. And the reality seems to be, then, that these um, Satanists tend to be uh, very respected men in respected professions. The Satanists I know, who belong to Luciferian and Satanist covens in New York, are all lawyers, doctors, uh, architects, uh, nurses, um, brokers, uh, businessmen, entrepreneurs, and they're perfectly respectable citizens. They pay their taxes. They even contribute to the local church. Some of them are Catholic, some of them are Protestant, some of them are Jewish. No, they're perfectly respectable as far as civic life goes. They're models of civic behavior. And they usually have great sexual property and business property. Their word is their bond. And their work as surgeons or as, as doctors or, or research scientists is impeccable. No, they're perfectly respectable. But they are worshippers of Lucifer. And these men, do they have a very large uh, undetected influence? Of course they have because uh, they constantly represent the Satanist influence, the Luciferian principle, that there's nothing above the sky and there's nothing beneath the earth, there's just us, alive for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and then it's over. So, uh, snatch the day. And these Luciferians, these Satanists, then have also um, penetrated and gained a largely undetected influence even within the church then. Uh, unfortunately, that is the situation. We have the fact that uh, prelates and priests and nuns, but above all prelates in the church, have become members of covens and worship Satan and worship Lucifer because they're distinct demons. Uh, and uh, Lucifer is the prince and Satan is the apicon. He's the, he's the lie-by. He's the... He does the skullduggery work. Lucifer presides and is the prince. As Christ called him, the prince. The prince of this world. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how shocking it is 
when you find out that a prelate is a member of a coven and he actually worships Satan, worships Lucifer, you have no idea how, it seems to be such a desecration, it's like the, it's Jesus' kiss on Jesus' cheek that night, kissing him. So it's an act of betrayal? Oh yes, it's a, it's a Judas priest act. And uh, the dreadful thing is, a few of them, for some reason or other, which I can't make out theologically, they come for help. In a vague sense, they talk about their lives and talk about the church and they talk about decisions they make and they will say, well, um, do you think that was uh, unworthy of me as a bishop? And I, was, I, I said, yes, I think it was very unworthy of you. I think it helped the prince. And they'd blench at that. They'd, uh, that was a, a, almost a blow across the face to them. And they'd say, well, um, I'll think about these things, but uh, I just can't, I can't break away at the present moment. They can't give it up. And uh, if you said to them, as I did, you want me to pray for you, um, well, you're free. Because they don't believe they can be saved. They've given up completely. Is there a distinction, then, um, amongst the enemies of the church, let's say within the church, between those... Uh, men who know what they're doing in uh, serving Lucifer yes. and those people who, let's say, during the Cold War were called useful idiots. Yes, there is a distinction. There is a distinction. But when you, when you finally unravel any one of the idiots, they finally begin to see that they themselves willingly were co-opted, willingly were taken, and refused to think because the advances they cover you. So there's always a measure of responsibility always, then? Always, always, always. Some are destined to fulfill important jobs. Some of them are destined to become cardinals, which is very important. Some of them are just simple priests, simple bishops. Very much. But some of them are destined to be influential and therefore can do so much harm. And they get special attention. Believe you me, they get special attention. And they get special um, treatment and they get enlightenment. They, they... They have lights. They, they, they devise a means of doing what they're supposed to do. And they get riches. And they get preference. And they're liked. And then there's this spirit, which is a very frightening phenomenon. They know each other. I, I, I can never explain it. But they know, even in a crowd, they'll find each other. It's a, there's, there's a spiritual smell. There's a sign on their forehead. There, I don't know what it is. They know each other, even if they've never met before, once they belong to him. And they will protect each other and promote each other. Absolutely. More decrees unto death. Unto death. Unto your destruction, if necessary. Rather than injure the interests of the, of the prince. Now, what I would like to know is, what is the agenda of these uh, Luciferians within the church? What is their agenda for the Catholic the Church? The agenda is this. They, because this is the Luciferian wish, they want to completely uh, de-supernaturalize Roman Catholic teaching so that we become good, unsupernaturally motivated human beings and therefore accede to their plans for humanity, which are very dire plans. Uh, for let me tell you. We have a large amount of Catholics today who practice contraception in America. So talk about America alone. And 66% practice contraception. 66%. The latest figure. We have a large number of them who practice abortion. We take anyone with abortion. We have, by the way, many Catholic families with two children. They have no more children. You know why? They've undergone uh, sterilization. Either he's had a vasectomy or she's had her tubes uh, tied up. As a deliberate act. So they're living in sin and they're joined, therefore, a thing which is very, very important. Uh, but I, I want you to gaze out over our vast horizon in order to see this. The biggest tendency today in medicine, in the medical field, in the health field, is to prolong life as long as possible. And to push it beyond 60 to 70 to 80 to 90 the year of the, the term of life. Their aim is to make it perpetual. 
And now the medical theory is that if you can replace all the organs, including the brain, including the brain, but all the other organs, so eyes, chest, uh, genitalia, lungs, pancreas, all the organs, you'll live forever. To do that, you need replacements. To get replacements, you need to harvest the organs. And therefore the aim, the aim, the biomedical aim of research today is to de develop what they call, not humanoids, subhumans. Anencephalics, with no brain, but with perfectly good hearts, perfectly good cornea, perfectly good ears, perfectly good pancreas, perfectly good everything. And to harvest them like you would, to, to harvest them like, like uh, donors. So this would take, let's say, uh, it would be the next stage past abortion. That's right. Because, let's say, uh, a baby in the womb doesn't have, let's say, all what you might be able to uh, need for That's right. this prolongation no, no, of life. No, no, they, it, it's, it's next stage, but accustoming people to the idea of killing the babies, of uh, liquidating human beings who are too old, euthanasia and abortion, at one end and the other end, bring it down to the living. And for today, there's no doubt about it. If you have Parkinson's disease, you're treated with uh, matter taken from fetuses. Living. They have to get the fetus alive to cut it out. Tuberculosis is the same thing. It's harvesting from a living baby. That's why they have living babies delivered. For that reason alone, they, they, they pay somebody to have a baby so they can, they can harvest its, 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 then they harvest its, its organs. The cosmetic factories, the big cosmetic names that make your powder and your uh, creams that are used in cosmetics, they're all using fetal matter. So really, harvested from living way. So this is, or I'm, the point I'm making to you is this, anybody who supports abortion, anybody who has their tubes bound up, uh, a woman, or has his vasectomy performed, anybody joining that stream of development is moving humanity closer and closer to this development of a subhuman. Because they're going to have that, whether we like it or not. And harvest it for organs. So that your, your eyes will never give out. And your heart will never give out. And your genitals will never give out. And your pancreas will never give out. And your kidneys will never give out. We can replace everything. Liver, kidneys, everything. We can deliver everything. All your veins, we can replace the veins. We have beautiful veins in these people because they're, they're only subhumans. They're not, they're not human. So part of the purpose then, um, part of the Luciferian agenda is to reshape the church so that it's uh, no longer a barrier to this new morality. It's just a willing nourisher of the new world order, of this order of privileged human beings who can develop their happiness, paradise on earth longer and longer and longer. The church at the present moment is the big obstacle. It's against abortion, against contraception. It should preach that there's only one aim in life, that's to get to heaven. They said, forget it. This is, this is the, the pernicious myth that we've got to get rid of. And we get rid of that by getting at the center, the central teacher, and that's the Pope. That's the papacy. That's the priest. That's the cardinal. That's the Roman congregation. That's the Dalsan rule. Corrupt the bishops, corrupt the cardinals, corrupt the Pope. Have a Pope on our side. So it's the aim. Part of the aim, too, like, I don't think you, could, you couldn't just capture the Pope in a day. No. So uh, is partly the aim to surround him then with men who are paralyzed sure, with action. Sure, sure. And eventually, that one of them will be elected and chosen as Pope, who will be perfectly uh, complacent, who will say, okay, we stop this nonsense about being anti-abortion, uh, stop this business of anti-contraception. Um, these things are part of living today. We must curb the human population. Um, and that's apparently the way the plan is going to work. So that's uh, observant Catholics, traditionalist Catholics, will become hunted like dogs. Like dogs. And by the way, today already, it is already a liability to be a Christian or a Catholic. Remember that the Supreme Court of the United States, in three or four decisions, major decisions in the last ten years, have said quite plainly, in the public square in America, if you bring into consideration a transcendent view, you have no right to speak. That's in America. So you can't adduce any Catholicism, any the Ten Commandments, the Bible. That, that has any transcendent view, which is not here and now, 
The target of law, forget it, pal. You have no place in the public square in America. So it's already a liability to be a Catholic. So what we're really heading towards then is perhaps a parallel of what happened in the French Revolution, yeah. where you had an underground church that was persecuted, and didn't, wasn't there also kind of a state church that the, the, the revolutionaries that's right. that's uh, formed? Right. That's right. That was kind of a state agency. That's right. And the, the, and the communist the Stalinists in Poland tried the same thing with the Pax priests, the priests of Pax organization. Oh, or in China, you have the Patriotic Church. That's right, the same thing. They, 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 they haven't been able to do much with that because the Chinese are far more practical. And, and then the difficulty is that the Pope collaborates with that because he, he has Cardinal O'Connor educating the Chinese patriotic priests in Dunwoody, Seminary here in New York. So there's a very, there's a very fluid attitude to that. And these patriotic priests, let's say, in China wouldn't object to, let's say, the Chinese government's... Uh, Abortion laws. No, yeah. No, they don't. They don't. They can't. They wouldn't. They don't. They don't. And you see, then, Bernard, the Pope's man from Beijing, the Pope's man who goes to Beijing, and talks with the Chinese is Echegaray. He's a Frenchman from Marseille. Uh, Echegaray is always actually. And um, I doubt Echegaray is a believer any longer. I doubt it. But he's the one who negotiates all this. And he gives Paul, he gives John Paul a story about what could be done. He's, he's the diplomat. He, so the Pope follows him. The Pope has this Polish tradition of not interfering with a man once you give him an office, let him perform it, and that's all he does, unless it becomes blatantly uh, uh, adverse and unacceptable. So the corruption goes on. That's Windswept House, and that's why I call the book Windswept House, because it's, it refers to an actual house, which is Windswept, but it also refers symbolically to the Catholic Church. So it has a double meaning then? It has a double meaning. There's a wind blowing through this church today. And that wind comes from Lucifer? Yes. It is. That has brought him into the house, and he's now in power. Now, what I'd like to do is take a look at some of the influence that, let's say, uh, these Luciferians inside the church have had, maybe uh, only indirectly. How have they uh, been able to reshape church life, let's say, from the time of the Second Vatican Council till today? Well, I'll tell you, look at what they have effected. They have made it so that um, they have successfully suppressed or transferred major feast days. There's only three or four feast days in the whole year when you must go to Mass. And even then, they can transfer it to a Sunday. Uh, so you're not bound to go any Mass at all. There's no... Uh, that's number one, prayer, just prayer. Let's stop right here. Um, I'd like to have a short discussion about the new calendar. Yes. Because I can see that as a very disruptive uh, influence on, on your pious Catholics to be shifting uh, saints days around and I think even some were expunged uh, from completely, the calendar completely completely but you see that therefore and when, when they were asked when they supposed to say St. Philomena people wrote into Rome and said do you mean say she never exists I said no 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 we just we don't want the feast day but do these people do they realize the pain and anguish that it causes let's say uh, a good Catholic who's been they, uh, praying to St. Philomena all these years they don't care they don't care. So what we they see, really don't care. what we see here, is a theme of the book coming out, and that's kind of um, the wickedness of it all. That's right. That's right. We're seeing a fulfillment then of the prophecy that charity would run cold in the end times. That's right. That's that they don't even care. Let's say about the. Um, laity who have these devotions they wouldn't care about the career of a, they wouldn't care about ruining the career of a priest oh no not at all and then you see the, you should be in receipt really but you couldn't spend the time doing it to receive the accounts that we receive of say uh, the diocese of Louisville Kentucky what the bishop has done to the people closing the churches forbidding the devotions they now have to bring in their own priests and they have their own undergone masses <laughs> and the same thing in other dioceses around the country the bishop simply is cutting them off uh, and will not nourish their devotion or will not give them masses when they need them. They won't hear confessions and the priests are dead afraid to move because they'll be punished, they'll be dismissed. Now in, um, I think it is the Archdiocese 
of uh, Edmonton uh -huh. uh, in Canada, they've removed all the kneelers from the churches. So that's, that's another move to make, so you don't kneel down, because now they don't want you to kneel down. So that, in a sense, represents the loss of this eternal and supernatural vision. Sure, sure, just. And But they, they haven't got that any longer. They say kneeling down is unworthy of you. You're a human being. You have dignity. And the whole thing is to live with dignity and to die with dignity. By the way, Bernard, in, in, in parenthesis, let me tell you, did you ever see anybody dying with dignity? It's the most undignified act. <laughs> dying is terrible. You, 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 you give up your, your spirit, you're incontinent, you're breathing badly, and you're dying like, a, like any dog does. Dignity? There's dignity only when you've confessed your sins and people are praying with you and you die with a prayer in your lips. That's the only dignity you could have. But to tell me that I'm going to die with dignity is a joke. No, death is the most awful humiliation going. You could not um, have a, a dignified death within the framework of uh, the natural world. It just can't. It just can't. Because you're beaten. You're emptied out of life. You're a hollow shell. Disease has eaten into you. And you're breathing your last and you can't do anything about it. And you're sweating and you're defecating, and urinating, and you're helpless, and nobody can help you, and you, you die with a very deep sigh, you give up your whole spirit. Dignity, Bernard, the word doesn't mean anything. So what we're really seeing then is that life um, really only makes sense w within the framework of the Catholic faith. That's right. And That's right. any attempt to build this uh, earthly utopia is bound to fail because they, um, they ultimately... All these uh, Luciferians and people who have followed them must meet death of their maker at some point. That's right, that's right. No matter how, 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 how facile a way that Dr. Kerkorian or the death doctors develop for you with acids and with drinks, etc., you finally come to the point that you die with utter indignity. And on top of all that, you, you're faced with a Lucifer who says, well, you belong to me now. Because mm -hmm. you committed suicide. Uh, and Christ looks away from you, you don't, he turns his face away and you are damned forever. So dying with dignity is so stupid. Living with dignity is something else. And the idea that the church was founded in order to facilitate the creation of a paradise on earth is totally unchristian. And yet, when John Paul II will go to France and declare on landing there that the church believes that its purpose is to establish universal brotherhood. That's nowhere in tradition. And didn't Paul VI talk about building uh, an earthly paradise? He did, he did. This is his big, his big, big address at the end of the Vatican Council. We now join the world. I'm sorry, pal. The church has not joined the world. It's crucified to the world. So even then, some Catholics who are not, um, let's say, Luciferians, have bought in to this philosophy. They have because what their Pope says it, their bishops say it, their priests say it. Hey... That's the only sources they have, unless they start thinking. But you see, it's much easier to fit into this world of paradise. It means you can accumulate wealth, it means that you can enjoy yourself, it means that you haven't got to be very strict about Sundays and, and about abortion, about contraception, about masturbation, about occasional flirtations, about uh, shady business deals, as far as you get away with this. So it, it makes life much easier. And wouldn't it also make life easier then for the churchmen who can then uh, hobnob with the lo local uh, legislators sure. and judges? And do, and do, and become Freemasons and get the benefit of being belonging to the local lodge. And not have to be hunted down, let's say, like uh, some of the um, um, church leaders were, let's say, in the French Revolution or in the communist countries. Sure, sure, it's much easier. And by the way, then, let's put it like this. It's far easier to say the Novus Ordo as a ceremony than to say the traditional Mass. The traditional Mass is a, is a, 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 a disciplined movement. Every action is dictated. You must follow the rubrics. It's a, quite a strain to do it. And don't you have to um, essentially keep your own personality out of it because you're acting in persona of course, Christ? Of course, of course. But in the Novus Ordo, that's great. I mean, it's good morning, everybody. How are we all this morning? It's, it's, it's a different, it's a totally different thing. Exactly. So, um, in Windswept House, Channing, who definitely was uh, an open and willing Luciferian, sure. said that um, they've had an immense influence on the new liturgy. Sure, and he had, and they had. And uh, Dr. Channing is a real person. 
but uh, I will not uh, reveal his identity. Um, he is a very important uh, Luciferian in the world. So the Luciferians then have had an influence on shaping the, the new mass. Enormous, enormous, enormous. You see, they, Paul VI formed a committee of eight people. Two of them Catholics, six of them non-Catholics, to draw up the new mass, the Novus Order. And they finally, he chose Luther's mass. And uh, he had to modify that when people started grumbling. But basically it was Luther's mass. We didn't believe in the real presence. Didn't believe in the consecration. He didn't believe in the real life. Uh, and he also disbelieved other things too. Uh, and he was very violently anti-Catholic and anti. That's why it's very hard to understand why the present our Holy Father praised Martin Luther as a man of profound religious conviction and a great theologian. As far as we're concerned, he was a dirty-minded heretic who died blaspheming. But uh, he did this, I think. Um during his uh, trip to Scandinavia in 1989, didn't that, he? That's right. He's done it since, too. So is it um, one of the thrusts of the new church is to have it fit in with the world, to go along, to get along? That's right. That's, uh, that's the movement. That's the movement. And even in, in Pope uh, John Paul II's last encyclical, that they may be one famous encyclical. That's Ut Unum Sint. Ut Unum Sint. In that, he said, look, as regards the papal primacy, well... Perhaps we could talk about that too. Now, Bernard, if you say to me, Malachi, I want to discuss abortion, the pros and the cons, I'll say, I'm sorry. There is no pro. Here's what we say about abortion, period. If you say to me, Malachi, I want to discuss the possibility of homosexual activity as an alternative, I say, I'm sorry. There's something that I would not discuss as possible. Similarly, there's no discussion of paper primacy. He has this primacy and this leadership and jurisdiction and infallibility, and I'm not discussing it. I'll explain it to you. You want to explain it? I'll explain it. Every item of it, and the history of it, and the meaning of the doctrine. But I will not discuss it as a possible, a, a, a possible alternative. So this dialogue that all modernists seem to be um, very fond of, dialogue has no place in certain areas. None. And that was the great error and the great crafty behavior of Carmen Bernadine. He started what he called the Common Mind Project, which, by the way, is mirrored in Winsett's house. We learned about it a year before he launched it. Now, that's one thing that struck me was kind of a very scary feeling when I pick up, let's say, my copy of The Wanderer and read about uh, the Common Ground Project that was very close to the Common Mind vote. Same thing, same thing. Bernadine is a very crafty man, and he proposed a dialogue. Let's talk, let's not fight. Okay, you like abortion, I just like abortion. You think homosexuality is good, and I think it's really not so good. And then we, this, that, and the other. Let's dialogue about it. And if you read his speech at that Monday morning press conference where he announced this, the whole thing, it's quite obvious that he wrote it, he, the speech he would have given at the conclave for the next pope, but he knew he was dying. And his, his vision of the church, where we learn to dialogue about everything, and the only thing that matters is that we dialogue. What you believe, old man, doesn't matter. What I believe doesn't immaterial. It doesn't matter. It's immaterial. The important thing is we keep talking, and you can say what you like. You have a right to say it, and do as you like, and I have a right to say what I like and do as I like. But we must dialogue. We must dialogue. Isn't that the key principle of what is known as the Renew Program then as well? That's right. Well, the new program is, is uh, definitely Luciferian. There's no doubt about that. So there's another um, aspect of this Luciferian agenda in that it seems it's the kind of thing 